Thank you very much, Stephen, for leading us this morning. Uh, if I stood up here and said these two words regarding Christian living, what would you think? Imitate me. Mimic me. Copy me. How would you react? Some of you might think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a cheek. Some nerve. He's got a brass neck. Well, in our reading today, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul say this exact phrase to the church at Corinth. And it's not the only time he says it or says something like it. If you were here during our Keep Calm and Carry On series based on Philippians, you might recall these two similar comments. Join together, says Paul, in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Imitate me. Or a little later on, whatever you've learned or received or you've heard from me or seen in me, Paul says, just put that into practice. Whatever you've seen in me, whatever you've heard me say, just put that into practice. And I know I've drawn attention to this before, but I find that incredibly challenging. Even the thought, even the thought of standing here and saying those two words scares the life out of me. Would you be able to come up here and say that to this congregation of people? Would you? Could you? If you have a Bible, please do turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think it's page 1145 in the Red Pew Bibles. And we'll come back to this idea of imitation a little later. But let's, as we often do here at Windsor, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. So please stand with me. Start at verse 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. This then, says Paul, is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. He will expose the motives of people's hearts. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Then down to verse 14. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. A way of life which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Please take a seat. 
For those who, who have been following this Church in the City series, you'll, uh, you'll know that one of the problems at Corinth was the cult of celebrity or something pretty closely related to it. Christians in that city church were putting certain leaders, certain traveling preachers and teachers, they were putting them on a pedestal. And what that was doing was it was creating division and it was creating tension. Some were saying, listen, I follow Paul, whereas others were saying, well, no, I follow Apollos, and others were saying, I follow Cephas. And so what you had was these festering factions and cliques that were developing. And this led to quarreling and jealousy and a fair bit of one-upmanship. They were elevating their favorites. And therefore, Paul had to address this nonsense. And it was nonsense. Because it was in danger of ripping a church apart. And at the very end of chapter 3, if you just look at the, almost the last verse, he comes out with this statement, this explicit instruction. He says, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. Cut it out. Stop elevating human leaders above each other. Paul needed to bring a bit of perspective. And right at the beginning of chapter 4, he says this. This then is how you ought to regard us. Let's get our thinking clear here. Here's how you should regard us. You might be sticking us on a pedestal. You might be getting into this cult of celebrity. But let's, let's nail this. This is how you should regard us. Stop competing, stop comparing. And what he says next is actually incredible. And for any minister of Christ, here is a brilliant overview and a synopsis of who we are and what we are meant to be. Here is an interesting lens through which to see ourselves that's going to keep us focused, that's going to keep us grounded. And this is also how others should see and perceive us. Now, in one sense, although this is specifically relevant to certain people involved in Christian leadership, I know that. To those who have been set aside to preach and to teach. And that's primarily who Paul has in mind here. That's his target group. But you know, something this was reflecting that this also applies to all Christians. Please do not detach yourself from this this morning. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is involved in Christian ministry. We all are, if we belong to Jesus, ministers of the gospel. There's no exceptions. That's one of the reasons why we do this time tomorrow. Is we bring up ordinary people, ordinary Christians, and say, listen, this time tomorrow they're going to be involved in Christian ministry every bit as much as me or our missionary family we're all involved in christian ministry and therefore we need to be praying for one another as well as hopefully praying for me and for our missionary family and so paul says this and so i hope this resonates i hope this connects with everyone this morning but paul says this this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of christ not the first time Paul has stressed this point it's certainly not the last time but for every Christian minister pastor, leader, worker disciple, here is what and who you are here is a core aspect of your calling this is what should define and determine your attitude and your actions we are servants of Christ 
I am a servant of Christ, and that is how you should regard me. The word for servant here literally means under rower. And anyone who was in, in Corinth, who were part of that context and culture, they would have immediately got what Paul was saying when he used this word. They would have totally understood what he was getting at and referring to. It was actually a very serious term. During the first week of uh, this series, I showed you this map which, which locates Corinth at the neck of a piece of land called the Isthmus of Corinth. And that word Isthmus comes from the ancient Greek word for neck. But another side of this narrow neck of land was sea. And therefore, the war galleys of the Roman Empire, these great majestic warships that were propelled mainly by rowing, they would have regularly sailed by, sailed into, sailed next to this narrow strip of land from the Ionian and the Aegean Sea. And so the Corinthians were familiar with these types of ships. And they knew that the lowest deck of a war galley contained rows of benches on both sides where the under-rowers, including Charlton Heston, sat. It's not him, isn't it? It's where these under-rowers sat. And on this, on this deck, this little deck that was kind of raised up above the under-rowers so, so that he could be seen, sat or stood the captain. And it was the under-rower's task to row according to his instructions. They were there to serve. They were there to obey his orders. And that's the word that Paul now chooses to describe himself. And to describe the other leaders, the other preachers and teachers within the congregation at Corinth, or anyone who had any influence on this young church, that's how you ought to regard us. Under-rower's. Under rowers of Christ, eyes fixed on Jesus, listening to his words, obeying his commands, submitting to his authority, doing what they're called to do. And this is now how Paul wants and needs others to see him and to see different Christian leaders. Not as big shots, not as domineering figures who have the last word to utter on lots of issues, not as celebrities to be elevated and compared with others, not as competing personalities. Paul says, listen, this is how you ought to regard us. Under rowers of Christ. Servants. That's what we are. And as I looked into this term, under rower, during the week, I came across these five characteristics, these five aspects of work that someone has identified to help us get an even better handle on, on what is meant and implied. And, and I found this really helpful. Thought I'd just pass it on. First of all, the under rower rode to the captain's beat. Often the captain wouldn't just shout out instructions, but would just keep a beat going. The rowers would row to that beat. And you know, if and when they didn't row to the captain's beat, everything got out of sync. Secondly, they had to row together. Otherwise, there'd be chaos. They had to row as part of a team. Thirdly, they had to trust the captain. Do you know, in the depths of a war, galley and under rower had no real idea where he was or where he was going. Couldn't see out or could see very little. And therefore, they had to depend on the captain's direction and guidance. Fourthly, an under rower was committed for life often. It was always a one-way trip. 
And finally, they received little or no honor or recognition from the world at large. You know, only the captain was ever visible. And although there were many men who gave their lives to keep the ship going, they were never seen. They rode on day in, day out, invisible to and unrewarded by the world. And I know you could actually, and and I, I did think of it, you could actually take ages just to reflect on each of those, on any one of those, and think, what does that say to me about who I am and about how I'm meant to be regarded? But I think it brilliantly captures what's involved in being a servant of Christ. We row to the captain's beat. We row together. We row with complete trust. We commit to a lifetime of rowing, and we row for his glory. And I hope and pray that will be our story here. That will be ours. That will be my story. Paul goes on. Back to verse 1. It's going to take us quite a while to get through this chapter. The second way Paul wants to be regarded is, he says, so first of all, he says, I want, to be rega- I want you to regard us as servants of Christ. Here's the second way I want you to regard us. As those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. That's a rather enchanting phrase. For those of you who use the RSV or the ESV, it actually says, We want to be regarded as stewards of the mysteries of God. I love how Peterson captures this in the message. He says, we are guides into God's most sublime secrets. You see, Christian ministers are and should be those who help others see and appreciate the mysteries and the awe-inspiring truths that God has revealed in his word. They have a responsibility to explore and explain the character of God, the depth of his love, the extent of his grace, the narrative of his and our story. We are guides into these hidden gems. We have got to elevate scripture and expose its life-giving richness and light. That, That is what we are here for. And again, the emphasis in what Paul is doing here is he's taking it away from people. He's placing it onto God. We are just guides into these mysteries, into these sublime secrets. We are stewards. We have been entrusted with this. We've got to share it. It's not about us. It's not about who they were. It's all about who they point towards. Don't lift us up. Don't elevate us, says Paul. Don't compare one human leader against and alongside another. Instead, allow them to help you see above and beyond. To see past and to become captivated by the incredible mysteries of God that has been revealed to them in God's word. And that is our role. And that is my role. And that is how I would love you to see and regard me. However else you see me. But to see me as a guide into the sublime secrets of God. And then the final way Paul wants to be seen and for others to be regarded is as faithful, as trustworthy. It's got to be one of the key characteristics of Christian ministry got to be it's the seventh segment in the fruit of the spirit faithfulness am i faithful to god's word it's what it really boils down to do i teach god's word do i explain god's word 
These mysteries that have been entrusted to me, do I, do I tease them out? Do I share them? Do I guide people into these sublime secrets? Do you do that? We've got to be faithful. So there's a helpful picture, Christian ministers. Servants, guides, faithful. Is that me? Is that you? And Paul then raises a very real, personal, slightly uncomfortable issue at this point. Judgment and evaluation. Paul's all too aware of the natural human tendency to judge. For people to judge others. It's been going on at Corinth. I follow this guy. I follow this guy. I follow this guy. Do you remember? Some even said I follow Christ because that was the right answer. But actually, it wasn't. In that situation. And this judging and evaluating still goes on in the church today. In so many different ways and at so many different levels. Christian ministers are judged. They're evaluated. They're scored. You're maybe doing it right now. You're comparing me with. You're measuring me against. And Paul felt this pressure. And he observed this tendency and he recognized that it came at three levels. There was judgment from within the church. There was judgment from society at large. And there was even judgment of himself. And although Paul recognized these three levels, he makes the point that he doesn't care that much about any of the above. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you within the church if I'm judged by any human court, society at large, indeed, I do, need, do not even judge myself. And ho, oh, how I sometimes wish I was a bit more like that. Because let me be really honest. Let me be really honest with you. I often find myself far too concerned and preoccupied with how others evaluate and judge me. Including myself. It does matter to me what you think of me or what I think you think of me. I am pretty interested, I'm far too interested in how I am perceived by the outside world. Whenever I tell people what I do for a living, I always feel I have to follow it up with some smart comment because I'm convinced they're going to judge me for it. And when it comes to personal judgment, I do one of two things. I'm either far too hard on myself or I think I'm a great fella. <laughs> and I get away ahead of myself. And the problem is, I can let all of this dictate. And so rather than live for an audience of one, I live to be a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. I live for the praise and the applause and the affirmation of others rather than the well done, good and faithful servant of the one. Who do you live for? Whose judgment and evaluation do you care about? Does it dictate how you live your life? How you perform? How you do what you do? Are you always thinking, I wonder what they're thinking of me? I wonder how they're evaluating me. I wonder how they're judging this one this week. And so like Paul... 
I need to be reminded, and I have been reminded this week, of the judgment that really matters. The judgment that really carries weight. The judgment that needs to keep me focused and needs to keep me grounded. And it's in verse 4 there where Paul says, do you know something? It is the Lord who judges me. I actually don't care. I'm judged from within, from without. Indeed, don't even care about judging myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Ultimately, he will evaluate whether I've been an under-roar of Christ. He will evaluate whether I've been a guide to others into God's story. He will determine whether I've been faithful, trustworthy, loyal to my calling. At an appointed time, says Paul, and so judging now and getting hung up on other people's judgment of me now, including my own, is actually pretty pointless because at an appointed time, a set time, the true judge, and here, here's the scary bit, the true judge says Paul, is going to bring even the darkest secrets to light and he's going to expose the motives of my heart. And, and that's where it really starts to get uncomfortable for me. Because I can kind of like, at one level, fool people. But God is the one that sees my heart. He knows my motives for what I do, for how I do what I do. And he sees yours as well. And I don't stress that to scare anyone, but as a wake-up call to remind us that one day, someday, on the day, I'm going to stand before God and absolutely nothing's going to be hidden. Whether we have lived this life as faithful servants and guides will be revealed. And referring back to last week, to chapter 3, how we have built and what materials we have used will be disclosed. And therefore, if we hear nothing else this morning, let's be clear on whose judgment really counts and make sure we allow that to determine and dictate our daily discipleship. And in so many ways, although this is not always how we see it, but that is and can be a profoundly liberating thought, at least it is for me when I get my head right. Because you know something? People won't always get us or me. They won't always understand us. They won't always appreciate what we're about. But God searches within through the way things appear because he's looking right into my heart. God knows me far better than anyone here, including Glenn. That's my wife, by the way. For anyone visiting. She is a girl. Glenn. <laughs> Glenn S. Sorry. I've got myself into so much trouble with that before. And I love how Paul finishes verse 5. Look at how Paul finishes verse 5. At that time, he says, each. At that appointed time, whenever God judges, when the darkness has been exposed by the light, when the motives of my heart have been laid bare, listen what Paul says. At that time, each will receive what? Get this, their praise from God. Do you know we are conditioned and rightly so to praise God? to exalt him via our lives, via our voices, as we have been doing here this morning. But one day, faithful servants and guides will be on the receiving end of the praise of God. That, that's a mind-boggling thought. You spend your whole life praising God or setting out determined. One day, each will receive their praise from God. Before we nearly finish, 
I do want to add a bit of a rider, so to speak. I, I am not saying, by the way, there is no place for critique or constructive criticism of one another. Do, do you know, I've said there that Paul said, I don't care whether I get judged from within or without or judge myself. And somebody might be thinking, so hang on a wee minute. So somebody can just stand up here and say what they want and then can say, well, actually, it doesn't really matter what you think of me, what they think of me, even what I think of myself. And there are people who have kind of applied this in those terms and got away with saying some incredibly painful and ridiculous and hurtful stuff. So I'm not saying there's no place for critique or constructive criticism of one another, and I encourage you to critique me and constructively criticize me. I'm not saying there's no place for admonishment or accountability or even the need to make a judgment call whenever someone is doing something wrong. In the very next chapter, Paul challenges the church at Corinth because they won't make a judgment call even though someone in the church is involved in a sex scandal. And they won't, they won't judge. They won't make a judgment call. And Paul challenges them on that. Incidentally, we, we, we were going to look at that next week. And then I realized that the kids are all going to be in. So we're jumping a few chapters in 1 Corinthians. So I do apologize for those of you who are thinking, great, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. There's some big issues in there that David's going to have to deal with before he clears off for four months. Well, actually, I'm not going to deal with them. And I apologize for that, but the, but the point is all the kids are going to be in with us during the month of July, and it would be totally inappropriate for me to handle some of the material in chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7 with them there. I got out of that one so well. <laughs> but listen, there is a place and a biblical mandate for accountability, for constructive criticism, for critique, for judgment calls whenever someone is doing wrong. But we have got to be very, very careful we don't cross a line. That we are very clear on our motives for speaking into someone else's life. That we're not passing any kind of final judgment, which is what we looked at as part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, don't judge. It's all about passing some kind of final judgment on someone. And we are not to judge the motives of people's hearts. We don't know why people do certain things. If we, could, if we could just learn this lesson, folks. We do not know why some people do certain things. It is not our place to judge the motives of someone's heart. That's God's prerogative. And one day, one day, it'll all be exposed. I realize there's lots more to consider. Two minutes. Let me finish where we started. This incredible advice and statement of Paul to the Christians at Corinth, all about the art of imitation. Imitate me, says Paul. Sounds terribly conceited. It's as if Paul is, is boasting that he's setting himself up as somehow perfect. I'm the ultimate Christian. Just imitate me. And yet when we read his other letters, we realize that, well, that simply can't be the case. So, for example, whenever he writes to Timothy who he's about to refer to here, yes. But here's how Paul once described himself. I am the worst of sinners. That's how he once described himself. So Paul is well aware of his own weaknesses and shortcomings and mess. But the reason that he's able to offer such startling and striking advice and guidance is because of his commitment and desire to express a way of life that was Christ-like and Christ-centered. 
And so later on in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul writes, follow my example, which again, at face value, sounds incredibly pretentious. But then he adds the all-important backup. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And it's that intention of Paul's, it's that discovery that changes everything. And so here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he informs this city church, listen, I'm sending Timothy, and Timothy's going to remind you of something. Here's what he's going to remind you of. He will remind you how I follow Jesus and how everything I teach is actually backed up by how I live. Wow. What an incredible thing to be able to say. Everything I teach is backed up everywhere in every church. And so if that's true, Paul, then you've every right to say, imitate, mimic, and copy me. Perfectly legitimate. It's wise counsel, in fact. And so for us here this morning, the challenge, or one of the key challenges to face up to, is not so much whether any one of you could come up here and say to this congregation, imitate me. that's, That's actually not the challenge. The challenge is whether you could come up here and say, I'm following the example of Jesus. I'm following the example of Jesus. So I'm attempting to walk as he walked in life, in my attitudes, in my words, in my actions, in the choices I make, in the decisions I take. I'm trying to walk as Christ walked. Therefore, there are grounds for me being able to say to you, imitate me. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's the challenge I face out of this text this morning. Can I say I'm following the example of Jesus? Can you say that? And to tie these two parts together this morning as I close, you see those who follow the example of Jesus and are worth imitating are servants, guides, and faithful. And whenever that happens in a church, there'll be no divisions. There'll be no disunity. There will be no comparing and competing. And it's my hope and prayer that that will be the experience of this church. Let's pray.